So tonight, uh, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to make our way there after a couple of introductory remarks. Uh, uh, each week, as we uh, move through the chapter, I'm going to build on a couple of slides that uh, I have had in the past, but it's going to be kind of an ongoing week-to-week -week thing that might add another element to it. So the first thing that you'll notice is here in uh, chapters one through six. Uh, the reason that I've entitled this study we're in Risky Resistance is because there is a resistance that is found all through the book. Remember that uh, Daniel and his three friends refused food in chapter one. And now we're gonna see in chapter three, they're gonna refuse fidelity to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, with a statue that he has erected. Um, this particular chapter, I think, is going to talk about political atheism on the on the part of the three friends of Daniel and the radical faith. They don't believe in what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, uh, but they do believe in the ability of God to deliver them from the punishment of Nebuchadnezzar. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the chapter in stages, and we're going to look at it uh, this way, first at the statue itself, then the command of obedience, then the denunciation of the Jews by some Babylonians, the appearance before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the defiance of the three friends of Daniel, and then the deliverance itself, and then a glorification uh, and promotion of these three at the end of the chapter. Now, I'm going to be moving around a little bit to give you illustration as well in some of the apocryphal books. And I know you don't have those in your Bible. Most people don't have those, but I do in this um, uh, interpreter's Bible that I have. And so I'm going to illustrate uh, the connections to Daniel 3 that is also found in some of the apocryphal books, which are almost like commentaries upon Daniel's story. So with that in mind, we're going to get into chapter 3, which is still a part of the Aramaic section of Daniel, and then it's also in prose. It's told in story form, and we won't uh, see a different genre until we get to chapter 8, and that's where it then turns back to the Hebrew language. So here's an, another slide I'm going to build on. Uh, as we go week to week. So the first thing that I would like for us to remember, uh, I put up a slide last week th that said writings of the past are in service to the circumstances of the present. So the way the book of Daniel is working is these court tales that are being told are for uh, the people that are living in the time of the reign of Antiochus Epiphany uh, his his violence, his terror, his rule over the Jewish people. So they will look back to Daniel. They'll look back to these court tales of Daniel's life, and they will uh, inspire these people that are literally facing much of the same thing Daniel and his friends are facing and uh, encourage them to continue to have hope and to continue ha to have faith in God. Now, here's another one that I want to add. History is in service to the narrative in the ancient Near East. This is directly opposite 
to the, our Western mindset. In other words, they're not so concerned that they're getting all the details of history right. Uh, they're more concerned about how it frames the narrative or the story that is being told. When we read stories in the West, we have such a literal mindset. We go, okay, as I read this story, is it historically and literally true? So we tend to use the narrative as a way of establishing history. But with, within Jewish and ancient Near Eastern uh, literature, the history that is sometimes noted, and we see that several times in the book of Daniel, where it talks about a year in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and, and some of the other rulers. Some of those things as archaeologists um, begin to uncover things, and then you have extra biblical literature that establishes the reign of certain individuals, and their efforts to try to tie together dates uh, from what they see in other literature and from uh, archaeological findings to the biblical text is sometimes very difficult. And one of the reasons is because they don't have the same approach to history as we do. History is in service to the narrative. Does that make sense? Okay, so it sets certain things up that they want to communicate, and that's uh, that's the way it's told. So we don't need to get all bent out of shape if certain things aren't lining up. Sometimes uh, people's approach to the Bible, and many times within uh, apologetics, they try to iron out all the little differences that sometimes can occur uh, between extra uh, biblical literature and the biblical text. And I don't think this has much bearing at all on inspiration. I think it has more to do with the idea of how they use the information they have to communicate and carry on the story for the next generation. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions there? Okay, so now, chapter three is a tale of court conflict. So Daniel and his three friends are in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. They have some uh, positions of influence that have been granted to them, specifically to Daniel, because he was able to interpret uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But what we find is Nebuchadnezzar is an individual that will flip-flop several times in the book. So when you read by the end of chapter 2 that Daniel and his friends have been promoted, um, and Nebuchadnezzar even falls on his face and worships Daniel at the end of chapter 2, all you need to do is see that that flips in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and Part of what is happening here in chapter three is Nebuchadnezzar is trying to establish um, a, a one religion, and it's not the worship of Yahweh. We'll see in a moment that it is probably Bel, which is another uh, name for Zeus under Greek rule. But what we find is that there is uh, an effort to kind of unify the one dominant religion. And the way he's going to do that is build a statue, this golden statue that we find in the uh, first uh, several paragraphs here. 
Now, what's interesting in this chapter is we don't know where Daniel is. He's not in the chapter. And we're not told why. Um, in At the end of chapter two, it's the core of these four men. But Daniel is not here. We don't know if he's away on official business on behalf of the king. We don't know if he's not in jeopardy uh, because uh, he's kind of like the right-hand man of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, all we can do is surmise why he's not here. Now, sometimes people will begin to look at when these three men are in the fiery furnace, there is a fourth individual that appears there that looks like a son of God. And there's a lot of uh, speculation as to who that is. One perspective is that it possibly could have been Daniel, even though he's not named. I don't think that's likely, but that's one uh, perspective. So here we have the main point of this chapter, I think, is the faithfulness of these three men and the miraculous deliverance that they will experience uh, from the power of God. There is a setup that is going to happen here between the power of the Babylonian gods and the God of the Israelites. So we're going to look for that a little bit. This is a long chapter. Um, and the one thing to uh, remind ourselves as we go through this is much of what is recorded here is repeated two or three times, uh, like the naming of the officials that are there, uh, the naming of the musical instruments that are being played. I mean, it is it is repeated several times in this chapter. So, you know, if we were editors of this, I'm sure we could have uh, shorten this chapter down quite a bit. However, that's part of the uh, power of this. Think of this as kind of a rhythm and think of this kind of like a chorus in a song that you come back to it again and again. So it is emphasized over and over. Any thoughts before we get into the actual verses? Okay, so let's look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're told, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So now this chapter begins pretty abruptly, doesn't it? All of a sudden, there's this construction project that's going on. The issue, though, is this golden statue, it seems to me, is in some ways an interpretation of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember, in his dream, he was the head of gold. Now, this is a statue, not of solid gold, but probably gold-plated, and it is um, very oddly shaped. Um we see here that this particular statue uh, is nine times, ten times the width of it, which makes it sort of like a pole-like structure. And uh, its stability would, I don't know, not be very good. I mean, if if there was some desert storms that came along and strong winds and sandstorms and that type of thing, um, the, even the shape of it 
would have probably been blown over pretty easily unless it was supported with some type of cross beams or something. But what I think is happening here is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the gold head. This statue almost is a way, I'm just surmising here, is almost a way of reassuring himself that his kingdom is going to stand. I'm the gold head, and I'm going to make the whole statue gold from head to toe. So it's possible that it's the dream that inspired this. Um, we don't know if Nebuchadnezzar thinks that this statue is of himself or of one of the uh, gods that he worships. Uh, obviously, it would be of great worth, even if it was gold-plated and not solid go gold. The thing that we don't know is uh, the location. Uh, we don't know where Dura is. This might have to do with what the, uh, the title Dura means. It means wall or enclosure or a fortress. This might not be a location as much a, as a type of fortress or part of the, um, you know, the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not sure. But we don't find Dura uh, anyplace else. And so scholars have no idea where it is. What we do see is um, that this particular place, if it is a place, it's in a province of Babylon, might be located along some sort of trade route. That's uh, what some scholars uh, surmise, that it might be a temple to Zeus. Um, that's what we find later under a Greek rule. However, we don't know at this point. So in verse one, location is not really precisely known. All we know is this thing is an exaggerated size and this thing is overwhelming. It's almost um, it's almost uh, ugly in its proportions because it uh, it has something to do that with being bigger, higher, and better than anything else. So um, this might be even a little bit of humorous satire to think that everyone's going to bow down to this statue that probably can't stand on its own. There's kind of a tongue-in-cheek satire that's going on uh, by the way it's told. So thoughts there? Any any thoughts before I switch the slide? Well, don't you think some of the the size of it could be because it, he wanted everybody to see it could wherever be. they were? Absolutely. Yeah, because it, if it's out on a plane like that, <coughs> excuse me, um, it definitely would have been apparent from a distance. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. any, any other comments? So uh, as we, here's one of the, those things that I was mentioning just a moment ago about how history serves the narrative in the ancient Near East. So in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
Um, this particular uh, date is uh, said to be during the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. Putting kind of these figures together, that probably would correspond pretty close to the conquest of Jerusalem when he went in and tore down the temple. And so sometimes uh, scholars have said maybe the erection of this royal statue is a commemoration of the way that he uh, conquered Jerusalem and tore their temple down. And now this is a way of celebrating that victory and the very presence of musical instruments that we're going to read in the next verse or two might suggest that it's a blasphemous parody of what often happened uh, with the use of instruments on the uh, day of the Jewish New Year. Again, there's a lot of uh, guessing on this. Uh, there's no way we can prove that this is right. But um, scholars suggest that this is more reflective, though, in the edit, edit, uh, editing of the book uh, of the type of instruments that were found more in Greek culture than in Babylonian culture. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that's the type of thing that scholars sometimes begin to see. Uh, there's later type of instruments that's being brought back in to the text of, of a, what is being told of an earlier time. So again, we don't know. Is this statue an act of pride or is something else going on? It seems as though it's an act of pride. Now here's where the first reference to one of the apocryphal books uh, comes in. So in Judith chapter three, verse eight, this is what it says. <clears throat> uh, it says, these people... And all in the countryside welcomed him with garland, garlands and dances and tambourines. Yet he demolished all their shrines and cut down their sacred groves, for he had been commissioned to destroy all the gods of the land so that all nations should worship Nebuchadnezzar alone and that all dialects and tribes should call upon him as God. So that's an interesting cross-reference. So one of um, Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand men went through the uh, provinces and began to destroy the shrines of people and their uh, multitude of gods to focus upon Nebuchadnezzar and um, and demanding worship. And I, I, when we get back into Daniel chapter 3, I think he is demanding worship, not just of the statue, but of himself as well. I think that is kind of at the heart of the uh, text here. Okay, so let's read verses two through seven. Here we go. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, prefects, and governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And now here's where the repetition comes in. Look, verse three is 
just a repetition of what we just read. So the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they were standing before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed, you're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So you see the repetition that's going on here. So the best way that I can think of this is uh, think of the State of the Union uh, that our, our president uh, does. Comes in and, you know, there is uh, the calling out um, of, you know, the president of the United States and everybody stands up and claps and and then he shakes hands and he walks down the aisle and and then the whole uh, ceremony of it is if you like what he's saying, you're standing up and you're applauding. If you, you don't, you stand there like this and it's a, it, it really is theater at its best when you think about it. I mean, um and that's what's going on here. Uh, and that's the way it's written here. This is kind of like theater. And it is uh, uh, setting up a situation that um, is going to put these uh, young men in a precarious situation. So what is that? Verse uh, 4 says, you're commanded. O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, that you're to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the or the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble. Do you see what I'm saying? A good editor would would whittle this down to half the length, but that's part of the rhythm of this chapter. It's part of what draws us in. It's a part of uh, the pomp and the circumstance that this is repeated. And um, And so what are the people going to do? Well, it says... Um, they worship the golden statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, verse 7 tells us. So the people fall down, they do honor, um, they play the role, even if they have their arms crossed in their head, um, they they follow through with this, this game that is going on, except the Jewish young men. They refuse uh, to participate in this charade because they know that Nebuchadnezzar is not the one true God, Yahweh is. Thoughts there? Any thoughts? All right. So now it's been set up for us. And what happens in verses 8 through 12 is there are certain Chaldeans, another word for Babylonians, that are going to rat on the Jewish young men. Verse eight. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears, blah, 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 all the instruments, 
and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So this uh, paragraph, certain Chaldeans and certain Jews. These certain Jews have been given privilege and position. These certain Chaldeans feel that they probably should have those positions. And I think what's going on here is some political elements between those who are native Babylonians versus the Jewish young men who have been elevated uh, because of the previous uh, events that we've read about in chapters one and two. Now, the Jews are going to be denounced here for not participating, obviously. Uh, and this will turn into a rage on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think that becomes part of the motif that sets up how he reacts. What we find is that he is an individual that will almost immediately uh, lose his uh, temper, and he will even be irrational in some of the things that he commands uh, some of those serving him to do. We'll see that in a moment. But I think that's a motif. And the motif, I think, we find is this setup that um, that there are those that are going to stay true. There are those that are not going to bow the knee. And there is also ethnic tensions that are taking place here as well. Why can't you just, just do what he says? Things will be better for us if you will just go along with it. You, you know in your mind he's not God. We might even believe the same thing. But that's his command. Just fall in line. Do what he says. But they are very stubborn. And uh, they refuse to compromise on their faith. And so this will cause uh, a denunciation of them. There are certain Jews that you have appointed, Nebuchadnezzar. What were you thinking? And they will pay no heed to you. And if they don't serve you by bowing down to the statue, there might even be a little implication here are they working behind your back? Are they looking to uh, uh, somehow uh, perform a coup and bring your rule down? So there's all kinds of things, I think, that are in the background of the text here that we're not told directly, but that's where we use our creative imagination a little bit as we read the text and, um, and see you know, what this could lead to. Some thoughts there? So now they're going to get called in and they're going to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. And notice verse 13. It's a turning point in the chapter. Uh, verse 13 is the king calling in individuals that are insubordinate to him. And uh, what we find is he's going to put them to the test here. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. 
So they brought those men before the king. That's never a good thing. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true? Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you see the repetition that's going on here? Names and musical instruments and all this repeated. It says that you do not serve my gods, plural, and you do not worship the golden statue I have set up. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of, and then there's the naming of all the instruments again. Okay, there's, I think it's the third time of naming this long uh, set of instruments. Uh, he says, fall down, worship the statue I've made. Hey, it'll be all well and good. No problems. Then he says this though, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So there is a lot of ego going on here. And this arrogance and narcissism on, on the part of Nebuchadnezzar is what is setting up this situation here. And what we find is that this idol, whatever it is, is representative not only of himself, but of God, uh, one of the gods, at least, that he has just mentioned. Now, we'll see the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a moment. However, here's again one of those situations where I think it's good to go to one of the apocryphal books. So you see here... Um, that the Greek story has part of the Daniel tradition into in it, and the idol that is mentioned in the apocryphal book is called Bel, B-E-L, and the the one chapter book that you find in the apocrypha is called Bel and the Dragon. So I want to read for you just a little bit about this Bel and the Dragon. Um, here's what it says in. Verse three of Bell and the Dragon, it says, now the Babylonians had an idol called Bell and every day they provided for it 12 bushels of choice flour and 40 sheep and six measures of wine. It's a pretty substantial offering, isn't it? Think about that. Every day, 12 bushels of flour, 40 sheep and six measures of wine. The king revered it and went every day to worship it. But Daniel worshiped his own God. So again, the supplement of the narrative helps us to see how, how dominant this is in, in the book of Daniel and how dominant it becomes later um, when we find Antiochus Epiphanes demanding the worship of his God when he comes into reign. Here's another interesting side note. You might uh, say, well, where does the name the dragon come from? So it goes down later in verse 23 of Bell and the Dragon. It says, now in that place, there was a great dragon, which the Babylonians revered. The king said to Daniel, you cannot deny that this is a living God. So worship him. And Daniel said, I worship the Lord my God, for he is the living God. But give me permission, O king, and I will kill the dragon without sword or club. The king said, I give you permission. Then Daniel took 
pitch, fat, and hair, and boiled them together and made cakes, which he fed to the dragon. The dragon ate them and overate them and burst open. Then Daniel said, see what you have been worshiping? Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that an interesting? Now, you can also see why some of these books that are apocryphal were not included in the canon of, of the Bible, because some of it is a little bit preposterous. Um, but that's part of this legend that we've been talking about, these legends and the stories of how they're told and uh, what it means to the culture and what it means uh, to the persistence of their own faith and that type of thing. Thoughts there? So Nebuchadnezzar is going to give them one last chance uh, to obey, and they refuse. And their response, and it seems to me like verse 17 is kind of not only in the middle of the chapter, but it is in the middle of the concept of what the chapter is trying to communicate for those that will come later. Take a look. It says uh, in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to, pre to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden statue you have set up. So what you have here, I think, is um, the core of the chapter, a statement of faith, even in the midst of apparent defeat, because even the three young men acknowledge God may deliver us, he might not deliver us. Um, we're just going to trust him either way. So it's, they're very adamant, aren't they? And as they do so, they believe that God is reigning that God sees them, and that God will intervene on their behalf. So that's all we're told about these individuals here. But again, um, the Apocrypha has another book called The Prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Jews that kind of complement this. And again, if you have a Bible that has uh, Apocrypha in it, you have kind of like a, a psalm that is recorded in chapter one of the prayer of Azariah. Um, and this is when they're already in the middle of the flames, uh, that they're singing hymns to God and they're blessing the Lord and they're praying to God and, and that type of thing. So it, it, it actually is quite interesting uh, that there is these uh, elements that help complement um, what we're going to see in the next uh, paragraph. Thoughts, questions, comments? So that leads us into verse 19 and following, where we see the salvation of these three Jewish men. Um, they will be bound uh, to be executed. Uh, we see in verse 19, it says here, then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage, previous statement, he was in furious rage. 
He's that's still the heated emotion that he has. He's filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As he is in such rage that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary. Okay, he didn't think this through too well. All right, he um, he is going to actually bring his own uh, servants harm because he has done that. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Again, another characteristic. They keep naming all these things. <laughs> they could have just simply said they were thrown in with their clothes on, but no, they're specifically named. Verse 22, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace, a blazing fire. Uh, we have a recent contemporary illustration of the power of heat. So the fire in Hawaii uh, has shown that it has been uh, so intense that it has basically disintegrated uh, people that were caught in the, in the midst of it. Uh, they they can't identify some of those lives that are lost. They're scrambling to try to find a little bit of DNA so that they can be identified. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does here is he not only in his rage heats it up seven times. Again, the number seven is important because um, that's the number that we see God in control of, seven days of creation. The Sabbath day is the seventh day, and so on and so forth. Uh, what we find is this number seven here then becomes a um, an omen that there is uh, something that's going to happen and what happens is he loses his own people and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to come out of the fire, not only alive, but the text will tell us that they didn't even smell like smoke. So it's interesting the way the, um, the text is set up. Then it goes on and there's a turn. And the turn here is in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a God. Now, Daniel is not in the chapter, but this one who is in the furnace with these three young men almost kind of like represents Daniel in some way. It says here that the first uh, person looks like a god. The Aramaic uh, literally reads a son of God, which has led some scholars to think, oh, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. We're not told that. Um, 
what we will find is that angels will play an important role in the coming chapters. Uh, Michael will make an appearance in chapter seven. Uh, and so there's a lot of debate. No, There's no way we can know for sure who the uh, fourth person in the furnace is. But it it is some type of presence of God. And um, it tells us then that Nebuchadnezzar is going to approach the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he calls out uh, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, uh, come here. Uh, so they do so. And then you have another repetition, uh, repetition of all the officers. <laughs> They're all listed there again. And then what we find is a description that the fire did not have power over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not harmed. And not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. So we don't know who this is. Could be Jesus. It could be an angel. Um, I don't know. But it represents God. Does that make sense? So the presence of God is in this fourth person. Thoughts? So now the text will flip. What will happen next is Nebuchadnezzar is going to basically um, promote them. If you come down to the last uh, paragraph, Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The one thing that hasn't gone away, though, is this guy is a madman still. No, no, now I'm going to tear everybody else's uh, arms and limbs off if you don't uh, honor these three men. So there is a sense of a humbling on the part of Nebuchadnezzar, but I don't think it's genuine. I think we're going to see in coming elements of the story that he's still full of himself um he's been um humbled to a certain extent by this situation but he is an individual that um is out of control with his anger against any slight appearance of disobedience so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward in the book so that's the story. And I think there's some implications in this chapter that I'm going to get to. But do you have some questions, some thoughts, some insights uh, on the text itself in chapter three? So what do you do with a chapter like this? It's a court tale. It's been told orally for a number of years. It's written down. It kind of is a... Um, 
prelude to what the Jews went through under the time of Antiochus. Well, here's what I, here's what I take away from this chapter. So first one is the institution of state religion. At the beginning of the chapter, I think we see that one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's taking a lot of tribes that are all under his reign and the officials who represent those people from the different provinces. And he's trying to unite all these different nations and tribes and tongues under one religion. And then he says, if you don't pay homage uh, to the gods of this kingdom, as especially as represented in this particular golden statue, which we find later uh, represents possibly Bell, that found in Bell and the Dragon. In the time of uh, the, uh, the Greeks, um, this could be Zeus, but, you know, in, in a polytheistic culture, what you find is there's head gods and there's a multitude of minor gods. And I think that's true here in Babylon, even as it was true of Egypt during the time of Moses. But what we find is that he's trying to institute state religion. Now, that has become a characteristic of religion that has gone bad all through history, is trying to force people uh, to uh, solidarity uh, by uh, projecting just one particular god that they are demanded to worship. Later, under Rome, that will be Caesar, who is called a son of God. But even in Christianity, you have illustrations of this as well. There's a guy by the name of Constantine in 314 AD that basically converts his the Roman Empire uh, to Christianity because he prayed that he have a vision that he could conquer a battle he was going into. And so in 314 AD, even Constantine and Christianity became the dominant religion that is forcing other people to comply. Part of that will come later in the Crusades in Christianity as well. So this is something that's not just true of other religions, it's even part of our history as well. Second element I take away from this chapter is civil disobedience. The reason this chapter is lifting these three young men up is because they're really truly heroes. Um, and I think that's what uh, is trying to be accomplished uh, through this tale for people later who are uh, who need the same type of courage that these three young men had uh, during the turbulent times of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's the same uh, it's the same type of courage that uh, was displayed by some of the early church fathers as well. Athanasius is a guy that his story is truly, uh, remarkable. And uh, other people in Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, John Fox, who assembled the stories of a lot of the early Christians who had to hold true to their faith, even though they would face martyrdom. And so this speech that you have in the center here 
uh, is true of people that have fidelity to God down through the ages. When they when they say, um, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the uh, furnace of blazing fire, you know, he will. But even if he doesn't, um, okay, we're not going to fall down and wor worship your statue. So there's there's an element of moral fiber here and and character that we see um, that is coming out of their civil disobedience. The hardest question is when is civil disobedience called for and when and when are we just being contrary for something that we don't like? That's that's a difficult thing, I think, sometimes to uh, to work through. But in this case, it seems as though it's pretty straightforward. You know, here's this golden statue and a demand to worship it. And they say, no, God will come through for us. And even if he doesn't, we're going to hold on to our moral uh, fiber and character. Uh, there are certain things willing to uh, we're willing to die for, basically. Any thoughts on those two ideas? I think two more things that come out of this chapter. We see some racism against the minorities here. Um, we see here, the there are certain Jews. That's very derogatory. Um, there are certain Jews who you've appointed. Um, and, and, it, and what we find here is there's a real hatred, I think, on the part of some of the Babylonians toward these Jews that have been appointed to significant positions. Um, the chapter, I think, speaks to some of the painful realities of what minorities sometimes cope with. Accusations that are thrown at them, uh, insurmountable odds that they have to overcome at times. Um, what is life like under the rule of absolute power? Um, you know, we see hints and guesses at it, I guess, as we look around the world and see oppressive regimes and what it forces people to do and the type of life they have to live. There's no theme of judgment in this chapter yet um that's going to come in chapter four as we move into that next week but at least at this point they have to live with it they have to uh stick to their guns um i think another thing that minorities like these jews face sometimes is crisis after crisis and then they get through a crisis and then they don't know when the next crisis is going to come. And I think that's kind of true in, in societies, not just our own country, but around the world and, and minorities and what they face and how, how they sometimes get displaced or blamed or scapegoated or uh, used and that type of thing. And then the last thing that I see in this chapter is uh, a reward for faithfulness. Now, by the end of the book, we're going to see that one of the rewards 
is going to be resurrection. Now, in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is probably one of maybe just a couple of places where resurrection is hinted at. But again, the apocryphal books help here. And um, you can read a little bit about this in 2 Maccabees chapter 7. But I'm going to read for you uh, the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So it kind of shows you um, how their thinking developed uh, from the time of Daniel's setting to the time of Antiochus's rule. And it says here in uh, Wisdom, chapter 3, but the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be a disaster, and they're going from us to be their destruction. But they are at peace, for though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good because God tested them and found them worthy of himself like gold in the furnace he tried them and like a sacrificial burnt offering he accepted them. In the time of their visitation, they will shine forth and they will run like sparks through the stubble. They will govern nations and rule over peoples and the Lord will reign over them forever. Those who trust in him will understand truth and the faithful will abide with him in love because grace and mercy are upon his holy ones and he watches over his elect. It's a pretty cool uh, passage. Again, you see kind of a theological development that begins to take place within Jewish thought, that they begin to think a little bit more about the life hereafter and the reward of God. Um, and we'll see that a little bit later in Daniel, not to the extent that we see here in wisdom, uh, but we will see a hint of it in chapter 12. So um, I guess the bottom line of the chapter, for me anyways, is this very poignant question. Do I need to be rewarded to do what is right? And I think that's the, the question we all face at times. Uh, will I do what is right, even if there is no, no benefit for doing so? And, um, and that's where the chapter ends. And that's where my slides end. So I'm going to stop that and come back to us here and see if he has some closing ideas, some closing thoughts, some clarification, anything. Isn't that an interesting chapter? It is just, it, I mean, it's, it oh. pull, pulls you in, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's one we've all read many times. So we're, yeah. But I, yeah. So who is this? It's the fourth person. I think the it's often said that the fourth person in the fire is Jesus. I guess who 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 do you think it would be if it's not? Well, I think I think the word that Nebuchadnezzar uses in the chapter is that it, it God sent His angel. Mm -hmm. I I think that's as good of a guess as any to tell you yeah. the truth. I don't know. 
we have no idea. Uh, everything that could be said about this is all just kind of hints and guesses. The interesting thing is, I think, um, why would there be anybody? Why weren't they just protected in general? In other words, why did it require a fourth person to be in there with them? And and, yeah. and that's I think, that's I think in part why why people feel that it was Jesus who was in there with them because it's a you know a person that was in there in some sense versus a just they're being protected by God in general. Yeah, yeah um, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, the fourth pers person obviously represents God, okay? Whether mm -hmm. it's an angel, whether it's Daniel, that's another viewpoint, mm -hmm. or uh, whether it is Jesus in a pre-incarnate uh, appearance. Any of those, I think, represent the fact that the presence of that fourth individual in the furnace represents the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe there's an illusion here. I don't know. Uh, it's something to think about. There might be an illusion here to the burning bush. Mm. Uh, the burning bush was, was not consumed. And God's presence was in the midst of the bush. And uh, God's presence called out to Moses, take take your shoes off, you're on holy ground because God's presence was there. So I don't know if there's a connection there or not, but there's definitely kind of a similarity. There's these three guys, they're not consumed. Here's this bush that's not consumed and God's presence made that possible. Mm -hmm. So, Is it possible that the fourth presence is just to let us know that it wasn't the power of the three hmm. that saved them. It was the power of someone else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was divine intervention. So there's no there's no hint that they had fireproof clothing on, right? So they should have been burned <laughs> up. And yet it was divine intervention that made this happen. Whatever way that looks, you're exactly right, Brenda, that this is an act of God. And I think that's probably the at the heart of what this chapter is trying to say, is that God will intervene at times. Now, I, you know, these are very dramatic stories. Um, and, and they're unforgettable, really. And yet what we find is it's to give hope to all people, including us, that God is at work in people's lives. And, and we like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego can say, if God delivers us, you know, we'll, we'll be thankful. We'll sing the song of Azariah. But if he doesn't, I'm still going to believe. I'm still going to trust. And I think that's at the heart of the chapter, too. Anything else? Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll plow ahead next week into chapter four, okay? I hope you have a good rest of the week. And you too. have a good you evening. Too. Okay. Thanks, good night, Thanks. Good night Thanks. everyone. Good night. Good night.